Okay. Father, we are thankful for you and just the opportunity to get together this morning and talk about you and who you are and what you've done. We pray as we reflect on your grace and your mercy and your peace, um, Father, that we would understand you rightly and rejoice in you and be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. By definition, all three of the mercy, grace, and peace, all three of the attributes, um, you know, Grudemann made the point, I think rightly, that they might all be subsumed under the category of God's goodness. Um, and and that, that would be fine. We don't have to subsume them under the category of God's goodness. Different theologians arrange these different ways, but, but he makes a comment they might all be subsumed there. So he makes his definition for mercy is that God's mercy means God's goodness toward those who are in misery and distress. You guys hear that? Because I, I want you to make a distinction, because most of the time we don't make a distinction between mercy and grace. Right? We say, oh, God's grace, God's mercy. What's the distinction, right? <clears throat> so he's getting at some of the distinction here. God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. You understand the distinction there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. And then God's patience means God's goodness and withholding punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. In other words, he's withholding his punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. That's his patience. Um, so what I want to do is, is sort of dive into some of those. I want to see those together first. So if you guys can, look at Exodus 34. Jack, will you turn to Psalm 103, verse 8 for us? I'm going to have to look at Exodus 34. As Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord, he asks him if he can. And so the Lord goes before him and, and makes his name known. And if you look um, specifically at verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Now, if you notice when you have all capitals like that, what is that referring to? Can we know? When no, all yours. What's that? The, the, Yahweh. the name of God that is not to be... Yeah, Yahweh. Yeah, Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. Some people trans, it translate it Jehovah. You guys heard that translation, Jehovah? That's a really bad translation. That actually, it's an, actually, it's a transliteration of the, of the words into, into German. They're transliterated into German and then brought over into English, and that's why you get the J and the V... Etc. Instead of the Y and a W, and and vowels are always inserted. We don't. There are no Hebrew vowels, um, so we just add them in. But there are, there are no original Hebrew vowels. So it was Y H W H, which most people say is like Yahweh, um, without the guttural sounds that are included. Right. So there's much more guttural sounds to it. But anyway, that's that's where that name comes. So when you know Jehovah's Witnesses come around and you know declare to you the name of God is Jehovah, which they will, they're big on that. Um, you can let them know that that's actually a bad German transliteration of Hebrew text. So anyway, the, uh, all right. Um, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful 
and gracious. Now, he's not being redundant here, right? So, talking about God's really goodness toward those in, in distress or misery, right? And gracious, which is God's goodness toward those who don't deserve anything but punishment. Slow to anger. And what is slow to anger at reference? Huh? Patience. Patience. Right, slow to anger. Now notice it's slow to anger, not never gets angry. Right? He's patient. He's slow to anger. It's like he's long suffering, not that that's another word for patience. You guys heard that word in the Bible, right? Long suffering, but not forever suffering. Right? So he, patience is a reference to the fact there is judgment coming, it's just not coming as quickly as it could. Um, right. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. And we wonder, why do the children and the children's children pay for the father's sin? And um, why do the other children, the children of believers, are, are blessed, etc.? Because we think of things in such individualistic terms. They just didn't think of them those, that, that way. <clears throat> you guys understand that? Okay. They thought of things in community terms. So if the father committed sin that affected the whole family, uh, and by the whole family, oftentimes the whole community, um, even people who weren't related, grandkids, affected everybody. Which the Bible speaks of sin that way. It doesn't speak of your sin only affecting you. So this whole prop, this whole sort of, Thing I even hear with Christians nowadays where it's like, well, my sin didn't hurt anybody. Um, well, yes, it offended God, and it hurt you, and it hurt grandchildren. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it hurts everybody. Um, all right. Um, Psalm 103.8, you want to read that, Jack? Yes. <clears throat> the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, where, where does that phrase come from? We just read in Exodus. Yeah, what we just read in Exodus, and it's repeated often. So let, let's deal with the the one mercy first, because we've got that list of God is merciful. Um, so let's deal first with mercy, which is which is really God's goodness in respect to misery and distress. You guys follow me on that? People in misery and distress. Okay. So look at Second Samuel twenty four. What, 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 in fact, why don't I get one guy to take that? Who, who wants to handle that? Okay, Spencer. Then can I get somebody to take Matthew 9, 27? I got it. All right, Jay. Anyone want to take 2 Corinthians 1? The first, probably three verses there, Kevin. Mm. And Hebrews 4. Anybody want to do that? Yeah, and we're going to look at verse 16 specifically. Who's got 2 Samuel 24? I do. Go ahead. What verse? Um, um, 14. 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Yeah. <clears throat> so he's in great distress. And so where does he want to fall? Hand of the Lord, and and why is that? Because God is merciful, merciful right? You guys follow that? Mm -hmm. So he's in distress, um, and so you see this emphasis with regard to mercy 
with regard to, in, in regard to distress. Okay. Who's got Matthew 9 and 27? I do. Okay. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Yeah. Another great passage. Now they call out for mercy. They don't say, be gracious to us. Although for him to have mercy on them would be to be gracious. Would be <clears throat> gracious to them, right? You guys follow me on that? Because they don't deserve mercy. Um, and so, it, you know, he would be gracious to have mercy on them. But they call out for mercy because they are blind. Right? And they, they want to be healed. Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> Alright, who's got 2 Corinthians 1? In like the first three? Yeah, the first three verses. Yeah. Okay. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. Yeah, okay. So he's the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, right? Um, and he, he's going to go into why, in verse 4, who comes, comforts us in all our affliction. Notice that again, misery and distress. And he's merciful and comforting here, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So you have this mercy in God comforting us and being merciful to us. Um, he sees sheep that are harassed and helpless, Right? without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them, and there seems to be a mercifulness to that. So, we could go on and on, um, but let's get to Hebrews 4 really briefly. Keep your hand for Second Corinthians if you have it there, by the way. Um, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. Okay, now what is Hebrews 4, if you guys are in grace groups, you probably know this already. What is Hebrews 4 referring to here? What's, what's the context? What's going on in this passage? That we get this appeal. Anyone? We have Jesus as a high priest who's gone before us, and we can have confidence in him and therefore draw near to the throne. Yeah. Okay, he's our high priest. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Right? You go on in the passage, he suffered as well. Um, and temptation comes particularly in the midst of suffering, incidentally. There's lots of temptation in the midst of suffering. Um, generally, the biggest temptation in the midst of suffering is what? What do you think? Huh? Well, either to turn away from God or to think that God is not good because of the suffering. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. It's the turning away from God, the thinking that God's not good. It's the, the short-sightedness to think God is done with something. So you're crying out, why, why are you... We, we all do it, by the way. In the midst of it going, why are you allowing this to happen as if he's finished with the work? You guys follow me on that? He's like, I'm not done with the work. You, you haven't seen what I'm doing yet. You, you're just... You're, it's like, you know, um, it's like this giant wall mural, and you're looking at one little tiny corner of it up close, like this. You're like, what in the world is this picture about? It doesn't make any sense. This artist is not good. 
right? You know, <laughs> and it's like, back up, wait till you see the whole thing. Do you guys follow me on that? And so there's this bigger picture you don't have yet. And um, mm-hmm. you've not done filling it in. So, and those are the temptations. And Jesus was tempted in the same way. He's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So that when we're struggling, we can go to him and find mercy, right? In our time of need and grace. So would you say mercy is basically like physical, emotional, whereas grace is more spiritual, moral in a way? Not, I would probably not break it down in those categories. You would? Probably not. I would say mercy is more focused on distress and misery um, specifically, whereas grace is focused is, is opposed more to punishment. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You deserve punishment, but God is gracious. Um, mercy is more like you're in affliction and distress. God is gracious, therefore he'll give you mercy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So how do we imitate God's mercy? How do we imitate it? If God is merciful, and he looks around at people in distress, and they're hurting, and that don't deserve mercy, right? Do you guys know people who are in, in distress or hurting that don't deserve mercy? Sure. Anybody know anybody like that? Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about people you already love necessarily. I mean people that might even irritate you, right? <laughs> that need the mercy of God, okay? How do we imitate the mercy of God? What does that look like? What kind of commands are we given regarding that? To show them mercy. Show them mercy. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians 1, he said in verse 3, God comforts us, he's merciful and comforts us, and then what are we supposed to do? Comfort others with the comfort that we've received. Yep, comfort others with the comfort we've received. Okay? Give them your coat, walk two miles with them. Yeah, lots of things. So if you go to, for example, Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are the... What comes next? There's all kinds of... Peacemakers. Well, yeah, yeah. uh, The one I'm dealing with right now, though. Blessed are the... Anybody know? You guys know the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What comes next? The ones that will be shown mercy, but I forget who they are. The merciful. The merciful, okay. Yeah, the merciful show mercy. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was, I was overthinking. It's good. Yeah. I hate what I do. Yeah, yeah. Right? Okay. Blessed are the pure at heart, blessed are the merciful are. All right. So, blessed are the merciful. Right? They'll be shown mercy. Now, and by the way, you know, if you look at those blessed phrases, the, the Greek word there is makarios, so you guys know. So it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or, you know, blessed are those who mourn, right? Which comes right after the poor in spirit, I believe. Um, blessed are those who mourn. You go, what? That is a weird contrast. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy is what the word makarios means. It's another translation for it, a very direct translation for it, actually. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. You think poor in spirit doesn't sound like a very happy estate, Right? Happy are those who mourn. Right? You guys follow me on that? Okay. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Um, you know, but there is this nature to it, and, and I, don't, I don't mean some kind of shallowness to it, but there's this nature to it in which 
there's this realization I'm 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 being treated like the Lord is treated. And so that's mm. that's a good thing. Um, I recognize my need, and so that's a good thing, right? I'm not going to be merciful unless I understand what mercy. Mercy. Yeah. Which means I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna experience the mercy of God myself. That's what makes me into a merciful person. And so why is a merciful person happy? A person who's merciful is happy because they will they're receiving mercy. They understand mercy. So they're happy. Does that make sense? There's a joy that comes with that, a blessed state in that sense that comes with it. Any, if you guys have ever suffered and you receive the mercy of God in the midst of suffering and then you comfort other people with it, right? The way you're going to comfort other people helpfully is if you've actually experienced it. When you haven't experienced much suffering, you're not of much help comfort-wise, right? Um, that's why young guys... You know, 18-year-olds don't make the best pastors, right? They've experienced a lot of suffering yet, generally. Some have, but generally, right? And so they don't always make the best pastors. Not just because they're dumb, right, or <laughs> immature or whatever, because they can be. I mean, Spurgeon was a pastor at 16, and he start, he moved over to what became Metropolitan Tabernacle at 19. So, and if you read what he did then, you'd be like, what, 19 years old? You know, so it, it's it's possible they lived in rougher times than though, but so we're merciful because we experience the mercy of God, and that's what it gives us mercy. Does it? Do you guys understand that? Does that make sense? Um, is it fair? Is it fair that God doesn't give mercy to all people? Doesn't seem like it, but we it have is. to trust it is. What did you say? It is. It is fair that he doesn't give mercy. He will show mercy to who he will show mercy. (coughs) That's the reality. It's not fair that he shows any of us mercy. Exactly. Exactly. But you guys hear that question a lot. Mm -hmm. If it was fair, it would mean that we somehow earned or deserved that mercy. Which, of course, we didn't. Yeah, God says actually in Exodus 33... I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I'll show compassion to whom I show compassion. Right? It's very interesting. Like in Matthew 7, the people say, you did all these things in your name. When they confront the Lord, they immediately say, we should enter eternal life because we did all these things. And a lot of people nowadays say, well, I have faith. I've done all these things, God. I should have eternal life because I've done these things. But but in reality, we're going to be told what's going to happen to us. So I, I think that passage is interesting. Yeah, God's saving us is merciful. Do you guys understand that? And gracious. Um, okay, second, the term grace, which is re- referenced really not opposed to misery and, need and distress. It's more opposed to punishment. Do you guys follow that? Now, mercy is opposed to punishment too, but in a different way. What I mean here is the deserving of punishment. Active punishment versus future punishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, well, yeah, but mercy comes for future punishment as well. But I guess my point is is that mercy is deliverance really from God's goodness in the midst of misery and distress, which we're in, in a fallen state, and in the, as those who are condemned, right? Um, grace is, is the idea that any of this goodness would be extended to us when we don't deserve it. So, so here's the question. Um, 
Let, let's well, actually, let's look at some passages with regard to that. Jay, would you take Romans three mm-hmm. and start at verse um, nineteen and go through verse twenty-five, twenty-six? Um, John, we're just going to take some passages in Romans mostly. If you want to take Romans nine, fifteen. Um, Manual, why don't, can you take Romans 11? Where would you? Do you have something you can do that with, Manual? Yeah. Okay, Manual 11, 16. And I'll have somebody else do First Peter 5, 10. You want to do that? Okay. All right, why don't we look at Romans 3. And the setup here with Romans, so you guys know, is Paul has been writing, and if you remember, he he's telling the church at Rome... Um, a few things. One, I want to come visit you. Um, I haven't been able to because I've been busy doing other ministry God's asked me to do, but I'd like to come visit you. Um, I want to go to Spain. That's my plan because the gospel hasn't gotten to Spain yet. And so I'm going to come visit you on my way to Spain and I'm going to encourage you with the word and you're going to encourage me and you're going to give me money to be able to afford to go to Spain. Okay, I need to raise some money. Um, so he's writing to them in part because he hasn't been been there to encourage them and he wants to. Um, but he's telling them, I'm going to come to you by on my way to Spain and get some support, maybe some money, maybe some people, whatever I need help wise to go take the gospel to Spain. He also has to deal with some conflict, but I heard there are some issues, some conflict in the church between the Jews and Gentiles. Jews think that they're morally superior, um, they're a bit self-righteous. The Gentiles have their own issues as well. Um, and you guys are fighting over stupid stuff, um, particularly um, the fact that the weaker brother, stronger brother thing, do you guys know what that's refer- referring to? Anybody know? What, what's that referring to? Was that food offered to idols or no? Yeah, predominantly. Now, who are the weaker brothers there? Those who didn't think they should eat the food. Yeah, the weaker brothers were the ones who were saying, we're, we're holy and we're not going to eat that food. Now, we don't generally think that. We generally think the weaker brother is the one who's given to something. Like, you know, so we flip that paradigm on its head and say, you know, don't cause the weaker brother to stumble. That's the guy who drinks alcohol, right? Who can't take, handle himself, and he's the weaker brother we don't want to cause to stumble. And that's what we always say, right? That's actually, the, that's actually flipping that passage on its head. Mm-hmm. The weaker brother is the person who refuses to drink alcohol because they think it's evil. That might surprise you, but that's actually the weaker brother in the passage. And you're not causing them to stumble. You're not flaunting your liberty in front of their face. So, anyway, um, which is interesting, I know, because we usually think that's the stronger brother, right? The weaker brothers. Anyway, so we flip that passage on his head. So Paul has to address that issue, and he's got to come after um, this. And the way he addresses these issues is by... by explaining the gospel to them. In other words, I'm going to spend an extended period of time helping you understand the gospel. No, pos- no apostle had ever been there. This church was started by people who were at Jerusalem at Pentecost, most likely, received the gospel, went back to Rome after Pentecost, started the church, and the church started growing. And so Paul knew they needed some instruction. So he wrote them a long letter explaining the gospel. And at the beginning of it, he makes this theme statement 
really in 116 where he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he wants to emphasize that gospel came to the Jews and then to the Greeks or the Gentiles. You guys follow me on that? Then he goes on and says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from, you know, uh, <clears throat> by faith, you know, from for as it is written, the just shall live by faith, etc. Et okay. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, Why do we need the righteousness of God? Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God has been revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. And he goes on to details that and the sin catalog that comes at the end of Romans 1, right? Where he catalogs a bunch of sins. And they can be found at the end of Romans 1 or the Democratic Party platform that was just adopted in August. It can also be found there. Um, I'm not kidding. Like, is it going to be funny? I'm not kidding. They basically adopted as their party platform, which is you know, homosexuality is going to come as a result of this. You know, all kinds of sexual sin is going to come as a result of this. Um, the endorsement of sin. They, they not only do such things, but, but they also encourage others to do such things, right? Um, okay, so you go from there. Then you go into Romans 2, and now he's dealing with not the Gentiles anymore, but the Jews. And there in Romans 2, when he's doing specifically the Jews, what's he doing? He's saying, you think you're, you're righteous? You're not, right? You're a mess. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're self-righteous. You haven't kept the law either. Do you guys follow me on that? <clears throat> and so then he comes after them. And then in chapter 3, he starts to sum it all up. What do we say then? What do we conclude from all this? And basically the grand conclusion is you all suck. Right? <laughs> you're all sinners. You're all toast. God has, you know, and then, Jay, you can pick it up at 19. Okay. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, uh, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yeah, okay. So this is a great passage. Really, um, 21 through 26 is arguably the heart of the letter of Romans. Um, it, it's probably the most... I would argue that this section, this you know, 11 chapters of Romans is probably... Arguably, Romans is the most important book in the Bible doctrinally. Um, understanding the gospel, and this is arguably the most important chapter or paragraph in that book. Um, maybe the most important paragraph in the Bible in understanding the gospel. Um, and if you look at how he lays it out, he starts there and he wants to contrast verse 21 the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, righteousness of God is coming because you, you're going to wonder how do you get saved? How do you get the righteousness of God, right? How do you get that? Because if we're sinners, we're not righteous. And God's righteousness has to be upheld 
Um, and for God's righteousness to be upheld, he's only going to be able to really be kind to righteous people. You guys follow the problem here? But there aren't any of those, right? And so the Old Testament bears witness to it, um, although it doesn't come through the law. just can't. You can't keep the law and become righteous that way. So it goes, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, you receive the righteousness of God, how? You can't keep it, get it through the law, so how do you get it? Through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God. You guys follow me on that? Um, For all who believe, for there is no distinction. All who believe, there is no distinction. And what distinction is he driving back at when he says, all who believe, for there is no distinction? Between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles. You guys follow that? Okay. There is no distinction. Um, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, our, and, and the glory of God is wh- what he's about. We are, we are image bearers. We are made to glorify him. We don't. So we're falling short of that, of his glory. You guys follow me on that? Which also means we fall short of the glorious reward that comes with that. <laughs> Which is not good. Okay. And are justified, that's declared righteous, forgiven, by his grace. And now in case grace isn't emphatic enough, as a gift... Now, why is that a redundant thing? Because grace, by its nature, is a gift. Mm-hmm. A gift is gracious because you don't deserve it. Yeah, there are synonyms almost. Yeah, um, it's a very redundant statement. You don't, you you know, you don't deserve it. So it's as grace as a gift. In case you're missing the point. Although, it's, although grace is demerited, but a gift could just be. Don't necessarily don't deserve it, but you don't. You don't not deserve the opposite of a gift, though. So. There's a difference there. Yeah, but the point is that he's making is the the issue of it's undeserved, right? It's undeserved. It's it's just given to you. Okay, let me go on. Through the redemption, and how did that happen? How did you get his grace as a gift so that you're justified? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's bought you out of slavery. That's how it's happened. It's from him purchasing you. Um which again it refers to Jesus in a way as a new and better Moses because Moses led the exodus. He redeemed the people by bringing them out of, out of Egypt. But Jesus, Jesus himself led the new exodus or the great exodus, right? As he redeemed the people, bringing them out of sin and slavery to sin and death. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, and then he goes on and he says, um, he goes on and he says, whom... Speaking of Jesus Christ, God put forward, now notice God put him forward, right, as a propitiation by his blood. What is a propitiation? Satisfaction. It's a satisfaction of wrath. Okay, so God put him forward to satisfy God's wrath, and he did that by his blood, Jesus pouring out his blood. Now why does Jesus need to be, why does God need to put anything forward by blood, to propitiate his wrath against sin. He will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. And what's the penalty for sin? Death. Death. And the shedding of blood. There, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. See that? Because that's... Okay, I'll go on. Um, and then he makes this extremely... Important statement going into patience, which we'll go into in a minute. This was to show God's, or 
to receive by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. In other words, why, why, does, why does God's righteousness need to be shown? Because, look at the next phrase. You guys know what he means by showing God's righteousness? You notice he doesn't say this is to show God's mercy, because that's what you'd expect, right? Or to show God's grace, because that's what you'd expect. You'd expect him to say, this is demonstrating God's grace. He doesn't say this demonstrates God's grace. He says this demonstrates God's righteousness. So why does grace and kindness and redemption and propitiation through Jesus Christ show God's righteousness? His moral goodness and holiness. Why does it show that? Because God wouldn't just overlook people that rebelled against him. That rebellion had to be punished, and he did it through the propitiation. Exactly. Because God wouldn't just overlook sin. See, the, uh, the, the accusation that was coming is, well, if God's holy and righteous, why would he overlook sin like this and just be gracious, gracious and forgiving? Right? He couldn't be righteous if he overlooked sin. Mm-hmm. Couldn't be righteous. And so Paul's vindicating the righteousness of God, and he's saying, listen, God isn't showing grace and mercy to people and tossing his righteousness aside. He's vindicating his righteousness. He's vindicating it by killing his son. Jesus' death, God's wrath is being poured out upon Christ, which vindicates God's righteousness because God's justice is being upheld. Does that make sense? That's why people say, well, why can't just God just be forgiving and merciful? Why, why does he have to go through this whole cross? You guys ever heard had this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> to go through this whole cross thing. I can't just... Well, because if God just forgave people and waved his magic wand and just said, mercy, 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 right, to all these people who sinned, the people would be crying out he's unjust. So, well, no, I wouldn't cry out he's unjust. That would be very kind of him. Not, you would, you would cry out he's unjust if you walked in and the man who raped and murdered your daughter was in heaven because God just waved his magic wand and said, I'm going to be merciful. You wouldn't stand before God and look at that guy and say, oh, what a merciful, gracious God. You would say, where's your righteousness? You guys follow me on that? Where's your justice? Where's your justice? Is it going to be had? These are people who suffered. They didn't. They they suffered in real ways. Oftentimes, we're so sheltered from it in America, um, in our nice wealthy society, we wonder where is God's justice in this, right? And um, and we or we don't wonder that, and we should wonder it. And, And so it's when you know it's when you're doing the kind of job Kevin's doing. Where, where people are running into, um, you know, crimes against them. And they don't go to a judge, and the judge goes, you're forgiven, the state forgives you. And the victim's family goes, what a merciful and gracious judge! <laughs> right, you know, <laughs> you guys follow me on that? Okay, that's not how it works. Um, and, and so, this is what's happening here. People are wondering, where's God's punishment? He's saying, he's showing his righteousness by killing his son, and look what it goes on to say. Because in his divine forbearance. What's forbearance? Patience. Patience. He had passed over former sins. What is that talking about? What former sins did he pass over? Was that anything before Jesus? Yeah. He passed over former sins. He forgave all these Old Testament saints. And people say he was patient with them. Right? He 
he passed over. And people say, where's the righteousness in that? Well, the righteousness in that is being demonstrated right here at the cross. Because Jesus on the cross died for all those Old Testament saints as well. But God had to be passing over them for a time until mm -hmm. the sacrifice came. He had to be patient until the sacrifice came. You guys follow that? Does that make sense? Okay. And he, and he goes on and says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just. In other words, so his justice is still upheld. And the justifier, the one who forgives and declares righteous, um, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Does that make sense, you guys? So he, Paul's wanting to vindicate the justice and righteousness of God, and at the same time make God a justifier of people. And he says that that's at the cross where that happens. It's at the cross where God's justice and righteousness is upheld, and where God becomes the justifier, the one who extends grace and mercy in the people. Does that make sense? It all happens there. Okay. Um, and to some extent, we can point forward and say, because we haven't dealt a lot with patience yet, but just to sort of jump ahead on this topic, we can go forward and say this about the patience of God. The, the reason that people continue to live now and the reason that people lived up until Christ and still live, every reason that there's any, any of we, us are drawing breath and God doesn't just come down and judge this whole planet is patience that is all found in the cross. In other words, Jesus bought and paid for all that patience. You, you wouldn't take a breath right now if it weren't for that because God is still redeeming his people in Christ and that's why you still take, draw breath and he hasn't judged anybody. In the fullest sense, does that make sense? Just follow me on that. It's all the the few several thousand years prior to the cross. Okay, that 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 was what I was thinking. Patience. So not only did he he did Christ on the cross pay for for the God's patience in the Old Testament, but his patience going forward till now. Well, yeah, it's it's the it's the reason why God is patient. Paid for his patience is probably not the right phrase, hmm. um, but but it's the reason why he's patient or forbearing. Okay. And we'll get into that again in a little bit when we get into patience. But but I just I just want to emphasize that that that's it's the cross is the central event in history through which why why didn't God at the fall just come down and toss Adam and Eve into hell? He could have, right? It had been just. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, and he doesn't because he makes a promise. And the promise is to save people. You guys follow that? Okay. Um, and, and so that's why people are still around. All right. Um, Romans, Romans chapter um, 9, verse 15. Can you read that, John? Is that, did I give that to you, John? Yeah. Okay. For he, said, <clears throat> excuse me, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Yeah. Now the word mercy comes up here, but I picked, I pulled out this verse because we're really talking about a graciousness in God. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna extend mercy and compassion to whomever He wills, um, and the, they don't necessarily deserve, deserve it. You guys follow me on that? Um, and it's His mercy that's being exercised. But it's dri driven by graciousness. I won't give. I won't punish those who, even those who deserve it. That, does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, 
Romans 11.16 manual. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. What did I give you? Romans 11.16. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Uh, I, was, I was looking at <laughs> I, I think I meant 11.6. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I, but I yeah, yeah, no, go back to 11.6. Like, I'm okay. sorry, yeah. <laughs> but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Yeah, okay. So, and if you go back to verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. There's, there's a remnant of Jews. He's referring to, Paul dealing with the problem, well, what about the Jews being saved? Did God forget about saving them? Because mostly what we see around here is Gentiles getting saved. So what about them? And so Paul has to answer the question. Is No, the Jews are going to get saved. Look, there are some getting saved right now. I'm a Jew, right? That's where he actually says, I'm a Jew, I'm getting saved, right? And there are Jews getting saved. There's a remnant of them chosen by grace. And he goes on to say, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What's the, what's the point? You can't earn grace. Can't earn it. And if you're trying to earn it, it's no longer grace. It negates what it is. Does that make sense? Okay. Philippians, um, I, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Ephesians chapter 2. What does it say in verse 8? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God. Yeah, okay, a good, a good, and another redundancy, right? Mm -hmm. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no man should boast, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You can go on and on. And if you actually, if you back up before that, um, but God, right, because we're sinners, but God who's rich in mercy, right, and he goes on and because the great love with which he loved us made us, while we're, made us alive together with Christ while we're still dead in our sins, right? Um, okay, and then he goes on and says, for by grace you've been saved, right? Okay, um, if we, First Peter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yeah. After you suffered for a little while. this That was one of my favorite verses in the midst of suffering. I read that one a lot. And if you suffered mm-hmm. for a little while, the God of all grace. Continue. Go ahead and read it again. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Yeah, so that's a fantastic promise, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, um, if grace is unmerited and undeserved, then what's the only proper instrument for receiving it? It's unmerited and undeserved... And what's the only proper instrument for... When you receive something, you use an instrumentality through which you receive anything. Right? Okay, so if I receive a package, I receive it through the instrumentality of it being delivered by the post office. You follow me on that? Okay. If I receive, if I receive water, I receive it through the instrumentality of what? A glass. A glass or a faucet. Right? Okay, whatever. If I receive, if I receive music, I receive it through the instrumentality of let's say, a guitar or a piano. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So I receive everything through something. So what is the only 
is the only instrument through which you can receive grace if it's unmerited and undeserved. Faith. Faith. Because if it's through works, then what's wrong with that instrument as a way to receive grace? It's no longer grace. You work for it. It's It's no longer grace. You've merited it. You guys follow me on that? So the only instrument that you can really receive this gift through is faith. What's the difference between a reward and a gift? What's what's that? It's almost the difference between a reward and a gift. Right, exactly. Look, if listen to Romans four and um, and verse sixteen, Paul says that is why it depends on faith. In order the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, speaking of Abraham, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So it depends on grace, or excuse me, on faith, in order the promise may rest on grace. Does that make sense? All right. Um, Chad, how would you uh, describe the connection then, you know, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, would the word also be an answer for that, or would that be... Well, the, the word is the instrumentality through which you receive the gift of faith. Faith, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's how you receive it. And faith itself is a gift, incidentally. Because I haven't gotten at that. It's not something you drum up in yourself. Saving faith, it's a gift. Faith is really just as simple as believing what God has said, right? And when we read what God has said, we have to read it to believe it. We have to hear it to believe it. So the the word is the instrumentality that allows us to believe and have faith in what God has said. Which helps distinguish faith from faith. Yes. In faith versus faith in God's word. Yeah, and, and, and believing... I would probably use a stronger sense of that word than just like intellectual assent. Right, right. Yeah, but but trusting, trusting, believing and trusting. Yeah. Um. All right. How does grace have bearing on the rest of the Christian life? And okay, I get justified by grace. I get that. So how does it have bearing on the rest of the Christian life? Do whatever you want. You do whatever you want. That's exactly exactly what Paul said. Look at look at Romans five. Look at Romans five. He went right there, Jack. Good for you. Thank you. So after he describes how gracious God is, how gracious God is, and he goes on to make this statement at at the end of Romans five. If you look at verse eighteen, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of Adam, so one act of righteousness, speaking of what Jesus did leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in, and what, so why did the law come in? To increase the trespass. In other words, and how does it increase the trespass? It does it in two ways. The law, when the law comes, it shows you that you're guilty. Mm-hmm. Right? And what else does the law do? Does it make you sin? Is, it, is that how it increases the trespass? Gives us more opportunity to be guilty. <laughs> gives you more opportunity, and it, it also provokes sin in you, because of our rebellious hearts. We get a command, and we go, "I want to do the opposite." Let's 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 just be honest. Immoral sexual behavior 
is tempting because it's sort of dark, because it's taboo. That's part of what tempt, makes it tempting, because our hearts naturally are inclined toward what God commands us not to do. Um, that's the natural inclination. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. And so it provokes more rebellion. You guys have heard it, you know, with your teenagers. You keep giving them all these laws and rules. What are they going to do? Rebel. It's true. True. Law provokes rebellion. Um, that doesn't mean law is bad. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have law. That means our hearts are bad. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So anyways, it goes on. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Jack, you're exactly right. Grace abounded all the more, right? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life of Jesus Christ. What shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Or we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what Jack just suggested, right? (laughs) Since grace abounds more where sin is, live however you want. Is that what he says? Paul expected it. Jack is just like Paul's interimaginary interlocutor, right? (laughs) His imaginary interlocutor. Here he is. uh, Okay, and he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, he starts to point to our union with Christ. He says we've been baptized, right? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he points to our union with Christ and says, do you understand grace? If you understood grace, you wouldn't, not if you understood your justification. There's a lot of people get this, un, this funky. Say, what you need to do all the time to grow in holiness is think about your justification. Okay, Think about the forgiveness of sins and righteousness of God being imputed to your account. Thinking about your justification is good. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. You start there. You don't stop there, because that's not what Paul actually points to. He doesn't say, think about your justification. He points to the union with Christ that happens. He says, don't you know that you've died with Christ and been raised a new life? In other words, the, not only the penalty of sin in your life has been broken, but the power of sin in your life has been broken. You're a new creation in Christ. And so you're, you, you're thinking about, you're, you're coming back to the grace of God. Don't you understand the grace of God? God didn't just forgive you for your sins and declare you righteous. God made you a new creature gave you new life, united you to his son, and now you have fellowship with the Trinity, and why would you want to continue in sin when you have that? You guys follow? Okay. Alright. Um, okay. Does God give the same grace to all people? You know. Yeah, oh, we can point to Ephesians 4, we can point to lots of things. This, that's, that's a trick question, isn't it? It's a bit of a trick question. Why is does the question, does God give the same grace to all people, or are there different kinds of grace God gives? Why is that a trick question? Because everything God gives is equally gracious in the sense that it's equally undeserved. We don't deserve anything, so that we give anything is... Okay, so Jack, you're referring to common grace then, yeah. predominantly right now, in the sense that, in the universal sense, all men receive common grace, right? Right. And and I'm not going to get into all the discussion of what all we mean by common grace, but all men receive that, and we're going to spend more time on common grace in the future. So, but all men receive common grace. In other words, um, you're all breathing right now, and so are all your unbelieving friends, and they're not dead, 
and they're not going to hell right now. So you can always, when everybody asks you, anybody asks you, how are you, you can always say better than I deserve, right? It's always the case. Because you deserve hell, so even on a bad day, you're better than you deserve, because they ain't hell, right? So you're, in some way, experiencing some sort of what theologians call common grace, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we see common grace in lots of things. You're sitting on leather couches. Common grace. Follow me on that. God gave us cows with comfortable skin for us to stretch over our soft padded furniture, right? And he also gave us men who know how to do that kind of thing. You guys follow me on that? So, okay, that's common grace. So we can point to common grace in all sorts of ways. Um, We see it in music and art and vocations that all of you participate in. All right? That goes to all men. Okay. Receive Abraham Kuyper. Huh? She received Abraham Kuyper's his books. Yeah, the guy. Yeah, yeah. Just the fact that he existed and wrote his books is common grace. Anybody who, yeah, writes that kind of stuff. Okay, so then you got common grace. What other kind of grace is there? What kind of grace is Paul talking about? Romans three through special, you know, etc. Huh? Special, like a saving kind of grace, right? It's this kind of grace in which God saves us. Do all men receive that? What's that? Only the faithful. Nope. Well, yeah, o- only those who have faith. I want to be careful about saying the only the faithful, because that, that assumes that grace is dependent upon us being faithful. Um, in some sense, we can say only the elect. I know we don't like that term, the elect, but Paul uses it again and again. In fact, the chosen in grace in Romans 11, those who are chosen in grace, right? So only the, elect, only the people of God is another way to say it. What's that? You have to say it. You have to say it. Yeah, it's so funny how we shy away from saying what Scripture says over and over. That's right. It's it's only those who are saved, only the people of God, only those who believe, only the elect, only the church, only the... However you want to stress it, the, those phrases are used in multiple different ways. But the point is, at the end of the day, only saved people receive grace, right? In that kind of grace. And the whole world doesn't receive it. You follow me on that? Mm-hmm. Well, well, like in Romans 11, when it talks about if it's grace, it's no longer on a basis of work, so otherwise grace should no longer be grace. It needs to say, say, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, and the rest were pardoned. pardoned. Yeah. And, and so he uses that terminology right there. Yeah, exactly. Which keeps pride from the elect as well. Yeah, because grace... Because grace, yeah. So let me ask you this question. Is it fair? Well, you know what? Let me ask you one other kind of grace. One other kind of grace referenced in Ephesians 4 and referenced in in Romans 12, um, particularly in Romans 12, that God gives different measures of grace in gifting. You guys know the spiritual gifts? Mm -hmm. Those are are charismata. Okay, the word charis is grace. So the root of that. And so the spiritual gifts are gifts of grace. And he gives different measures of grace to different people. He's not referring to saving grace there. He's referring to gifting. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You you guys have heard heard different preachers. And you go, probably if you've paid any attention, that guy doesn't have quite as much grace and gifting in preaching. I'm not saying a guy who's not gifted. But I mean you recognize different levels even of giftedness. Right? Who does that come from? God. Right? You, you guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. 
Um, does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So you're not supposed to be jealous of other, other what grace God's given other people. He's given everybody what he's given them for the reason he's given it to them, and that's good. Well, that's, right. that's do not covet. Yeah, do not covet. That's exactly right. So it's a different kind of grace. Is it fair? You know, it's not fair that God's gracious to anybody, right? It's, it's kind of a bizarre question, but we always come back to it. Okay, last thing, patience. Now, I've read multiple verses that talk about patience already. I want to I want to look at two more because um, we looked because the word patience has come up in several of the passages we've looked at, and I sort of want to conclude here. Um, Jonah four. Um, turn to Jonah four, and and um, if you have your hand in Romans right now, just keep it there because we'll come back to Romans two. But if you will turn to Jonah four. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I was just making a joke to Kevin. With electronic Bibles, we can't keep our hands there. Oh, yeah, I know. That's true. <laughs> All right. So in Jonah, that's the one thing that electronic Bible they have not designed yet is a way to flip back. immediately oh, flip back. Yeah, yeah, history. Yeah, I got On the history they do? ESV, yeah. Histories. Back. Cool. All right. So with the book of Jonah, what's the story here? Don't, don't give me the whole story, but what's the story for the first three chapters, essentially? First three chapters. Anybody know? Called to go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. Called to go to Nineveh. Run Preach away. them to repent. Preach to them to repent. Who's Nineveh? Enemies of the people of God. Yeah. Bad city. And yeah, they hate the people of God. And they're located in probably about current day Baghdad, right around there. Everything's where Nineveh yeah. is about. And Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites anyway. Jonah doesn't like them. They Why? Because the Ninevites kill Jewish people. They persecute them and kill them. That's Jonah's people. God says, I want you to go and preach to them to repent of their sin or I'm going to destroy them. Jonah says, heck no. I don't want to go there and preach to those people. They kill my people. Yeah, because right? you might be merciful to them. I don't want, want God that. to save right? so, so Jonah, if not Jonah's not afraid. He was like, oh, he's afraid. If Jonah's fear, if fear was Jonah's problem, he wouldn't have got on a boat to go across the Mediterranean um, several hundred years before we were in the A.D. time period. Okay, You guys have to understand, most of those ships... You know, a good percentage of those ships didn't survive. That's why in Ecclesiastes, when you try to just put your bread on the water, you cast your bread on the water and it will return to you, he says, hey, divide it up between six or seven ships. Right? What's his point? Diversify your load. When it goes out, you better diversify because it all might go down with the ship. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. See you, Rick. Because yep. the ships, several of those ships are going to go down. So you better, and that's why, you know, stockbrokers do that today. Diversify your money, Right? Because you, you, this might go down, and then you're in trouble. And so that principle's even there. Jonah gets on a boat. Jews are afraid of the sea. The sea is where death and, and where you know um, Leviathan is, and they're afraid of it. It's death and chaos and corruption and evil. They don't have any seaports they build. They stay away from the sea. So to this day, their capital is not at a seaport. All of our capitals pretty much are. Um, generally, I mean, we put Sacramento, but you still have a river into there. Mm-hmm. But we generally put most of capitals at, at, at seaports. Um, but they don't. They hated the sea. Um, they're afraid of it. And so Jonah gets on a boat and goes as far as he can on the sea at that time. Right? It's a very direct rebellion. And a storm happens, and they throw Jonah into the ocean to calm it down. Um, which, because Jonah tells them, it's my fault, throw me in. 
and it was his fault, so they toss him in. <laughs> and the fish swallows him up. Jonah realizes, this can't be by accident that I'm alive in this fish <laughs> and not dead. And he says, uh, you know, he, he makes this statement, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? And the fish spits him out. Um, because, as Sinclair Ferguson said, it was an Arminian fish. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, and then he's on the seashore, and he's walking about, and Jonah, in chapter 3, he goes into Nineveh, he realizes the point has been made, okay, God's not going to let me avoid this, so he goes into Nineveh, preaches, the people repent. Wasn't he still reluctant? No, no, not really. The Lord, where the Lord comes to him a second time, and he arose and went. It doesn't say anything about reluctance. No. No, but he was it, hoping well, he they was, wouldn't receive the he, message he, he, still. Yeah, well, that's where we're going to get to chapter 4. Okay. Verse 1. So these people all repent, and God doesn't destroy them. Verse 10 of chapter 3, if you look there, when God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he'd do to them. And he did not do it. And you would think, and Jonah rejoiced in the fact that his preaching was effective in the salvation of countless thousands. Right? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Right? And he was angry. And that's not generally the effect that evangelists come up with when crowds, throngs of crowds, repent. Right? Technically, he was a prophet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what? why is Jonah ticked? That's good. Why is he ticked? Huh? He didn't want to be saved. He didn't want to be yeah, saved. He knew this would happen. Yeah, he was ticked off. Dang it. I knew if I went there and preached, these people would repent, and, you know, you would be kind to them. And he goes on and says that. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you're this way. He's, he so he's complaining about it. Jonah <laughs> has extremely doctrine. sound doctrine and he's unhappy <laughs> that he's right. <laughs> okay. You know, and this is the awesome thing about the book of Jonah. If it's an honest look at the fact that if we're, if we're really honest... We love grace for us, but not necessarily for some other people. He's one of those mean Calvinists. <laughs> he's, he's one of those angry predestination guys. He wants these people to go to hell. But yeah, but he's, he's actually mad. He's actually mad because he knows lots of people are going to repent and be saved. And he's mad about it. And he doesn't like these people. And you go, how could he be? Listen, if... If God relented from disaster and was kind to and showed grace to and brought it to salvation, people who were murdering your family, you probably would struggle with rejoicing in that as well. You particularly struggle if he said, I'm going to use you as the evangelist that brings them to conversion. You guys follow me on that? You'd get it. You'd be like, man. Okay, there are people who are cruel to you now who you're not hoping for their salvation, probably. Right? And uh, you might even be a little bit like, man, this sucks. This person has been a jerk all their life, and especially to me. And now I talk about Jesus one time, they get saved, and now like they're my brother, and I'm supposed to be excited about this. You know, and uh, let's be honest, people really live there, and that's where Jonah's at. And he knows God's patient. 
and kind and merciful. So you see the patience of God show up again. Jonah gets really mad. He goes out on the hill to pout. Mm. After he declares to God that you're wrong, he goes up on a hillside where he's watching this whole thing where people are repenting in God's... Because he's actually gone, so you know if you look at it. Um, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it's better for me to, to die than to live. In other words, just kill me now. These people are going to repent. I'd just rather die. And he actually starts cursing God. In, we, we don't translate it in the Hebrew. Um, when the Lord says, the Lord says to him, Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it and said that there was shade. Sat under in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So it backs up. The story backs up again. So he's up there on the hill watching what would happen. Um, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade, be shade, a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah's really exceedingly, if you notice at the beginning, he's exceedingly displeased and angry because thousands and thousands of people have been saved. But he's exceedingly glad that a plant is giving him shade. Right? Because Jonah's very selfish here, right? And he comes on and it says, but when dawn came up the next day, God graciously appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. Again, he repeats this. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. If I would give you a direct translation of this, he basically says, You're damn right I do angry. I, 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 I'm right to be angry about this plant. It's essentially what he says. Um, I'm damn angry about it. That's essentially how he speaks. It's a very strong Hebrew euphemism, which essentially is, is cussing. Right? And he goes on. He says, And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. End of the book. Yeah, I yeah. love how we don't hear Jonah's reply to this, because it probably wasn't no. good. No, the book ends with Jonah being rebuked. Yeah. You're pitying the plant because it shaded you, basically. And so it died. But you don't care that, that 120,000 people were about to perish. Right? They had a lot of cattle. You're selfish. selfish. And it rebukes yeah. him. So, anyway... Um, the last question really that comes out of there, Jonah doesn't understand patience. Um, one of the things that my son asked me is, Dad, why doesn't God return and finally end Satan right now and sin right now? He asked me that all the time. Dad, how come God doesn't come back and just end Satan and sin right now? And the answer is... God's kindness and patience leads to repentance. Yeah, He's patient. The Lord is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter three. Why hasn't he come and brought the return of Jesus? When Jesus when Peter says, I know you're getting harassed about why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Wasn't he supposed to come soon? Where is he? Peter responds in two ways. First, a thousand years is like a day, days like a thousand years. God doesn't count time as you, you guys do. Second, 
God, God isn't really slow in his return. God is patient. He hasn't returned yet because he wants all his people to come to repentance. <coughs> so, so when God brings, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, when all the elect are gathered from the nations, right? And that's what he says in 24, when it goes to the gospels gone to the Gentiles, the ends of the earth, then what? Jesus returns when he saved all his people. Does that make sense? And he's being patient until then. So you say, well, so God's patience continues to occur even now because of the cross. Because God is saving his people. Does that make sense? That's why I say God bought you this day. You have breath today, bought on the cross, even if you're an unbeliever. Because the fact that you're not in hell right now as an unbeliever is evidence of God's patience toward you. Because you ought to be. And it's evidence of the cross. Because apart from the cross and God's wrath being displayed there and saving people through it, even unbelievers wouldn't have the common grace of being alive today because God would just return to cast them all into hell. You guys follow that? So we all have that experience, God's patience because of the cross every day. And how do we imitate God's patience? By being patient with others. By being patient with others. Right? Patience is not something you can practice on your own. <laughs> right? Patience is something you practice with people. So, And people that are difficult for you. Patience does not have to be shown to people that are easy for you. Patience has to happen with people that are difficult for you. Keep that in mind before you walk away from difficult relationships. Right? That, that, that if you walk away from that hard relationship, it, where are you going to learn patience? <laughs> you know? Uh, all right, <laughs> and grace and mercy, all right? Okay, all right, let me pray. Father, thanks for just your word and, and your kindness to us, the grace that you've shown us and the mercy you've shown us and the patience that you've shown us. We pray that we would likewise be gracious and merciful and patient with others, that be defined that way as a people who love well and who are gracious and, and Father, just that you would work that in our hearts and minds and lives in such a way that, that you're honored um, and highly exalted through it through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.